0: Welcome to Social Fished Insane, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on coastal fisheries and fishing communities.
1: I'm very hopeful to think that, you know, the whole world doesn't just change and do a 180 after this.
2: It's not like I'm getting rich or anything, but if that one person posts a picture, all their friends see it. Ocean health,
3: protecting the ecosystem, those are all very, very important issues, but so are treating workers fairly.
4: The silver lining for me here is that it's really bringing the end consumer closer to the producers.
0: Hello, I'm your co-host Hannah Harrison. I'm joined by
5: Philip Loring and I'm Emily Souza. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world.
6: In the last episode, we explored the world of aquaculture and shared some examples of how COVID-19 has impacted this diverse industry. We spoke to the Shawanaga First Nation in Ontario about their walleye hatchery and visited with oyster farmers across the United States. This week, We're talking about aquaculture again, but we're taking a step back to get a broader picture of the industry itself. That's right. This week, we'll hear
0: from a representative from the Global Aquaculture Alliance, a seafood distributor in Alabama, and two oyster aficionados who are using social media to educate consumers about the seafood that they eat.
5: Our first stop this week is with JT McKissack of Evans Meats and Seafood, a meat and seafood distributor based in Birmingham, Alabama. Prior to the pandemic, Evan's Meats and Seafood was primarily supplying to restaurants. So when they closed, the distributor had to pivot quickly, especially given the highly perishable nature of fresh fish and meat products.
1: 95% of our business was restaurants, um, independently owned restaurants. We did a very small fraction of retail business, so grocery stores. Um, And so we were really heavily impacted when COVID hit because we saw The initial, the first couple of months, especially, you know, restaurants basically were shut down. So I remember coming in on a Monday going, holy crap, um, we've got to do something really quick. So, and I managed sales for the company. Um, Our management team really came together the next morning on Tuesday, uh, looked the crisis in the face and said, you know, we can sit here and whine and cry about the situation, um, or we can start to make sense of what, what do we do with all of this product that's in-house. Um, that was the first and foremost thing was we've got a lot of inventory. All of it is perishable. Bringing in oysters, that's one of the most sensitive shelf life items that we have. Um, you know, It's one of the most perishable pieces of inventory that we bring in so what do we do with all of this inventory that has a lot of value attached to it, um, a lot of money tied up into it? Unfortunately, we've seen the oyster farmers for the first couple of months that really took a hit. Oyster bars and restaurants weren't open and like I said, retail markets weren't really just, it's not like they were selling a lot of oysters in the shell for people to shuck at home because that was something people really didn't do very much at home prior to all this. The good thing is, is that we are in the food business. People need food. There was a massive demand for that. The retail supply chain bottlenecked massively because no one was used to. Nobody's ever been in this situation before, you know, at least in our in our uh, generation. And so, we knew that there was a demand for it, and we were able to start up this what we've kind of referred to as the uh, the curb market. You know, where we've got the end consumer placing an order online and then being able to drive up to our warehouse. And we had, they didn't have to get out of their car. It was just a basically like a, a drive through butcher shop, if you will.
6: Like many of the other folks that we've spoken with who've shifted their businesses to a direct-to-consumer model, Evans Meats and Seafood has faced some obstacles.
1: A lot of the oyster farmers out there that we worked with had never really done this direct-to-consumer model because they also didn't want to, say, step on the toes of their distributor partners or their restaurant partners either, right? But it's really tough, you know, if you're if you're, you know, a small oyster farmer, then maybe even in your first, second or third year where maybe your name has not become like a, a staple oyster name that people are familiar with on an oyster bar. It's just it was kind of like, Well, how do you get it out there to the consumers that, that you're doing this? Which obviously in this day and age with uh social media with Instagram and Facebook you know, it's a pretty quick way of of being able to get your story out there and let people know what's going on. But when you start having to package oysters in boxes, you know, you've got to now buy ice packs. And it's, so it's a whole nother setup that these oyster farmers were not used to. The logistics changed completely. You know, luckily, here in the South, um, you know, oysters is a big food way for us. It's, uh, historically, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that's very classic to a lot of restaurants. Uh, restaurants are not just seafood or oyster bars serve them. So we started seeing once, you know, restaurants started opening back up to do to-go service. Luckily, a lot of these restaurants had really great programs and and figured out how to do oysters to-go, whether it be, you know, baked oysters to-go or also um, selling smaller quantities, you know, like little dozen bags of oysters.
0: Now, over the course of this podcast, we've heard many different perspectives on the direct to consumer model. Some have been supportive, while others have critiqued it. JT brought up some interesting points in our discussion about direct-to-consumer models competing with restaurants and why his company slowly moved away from direct sales once restaurants started to open up again.
1: It was probably by mid to end of the summer, we pretty much dissolved all but one of our direct-to-consumer models. and uh, We had to pull back because... We A, didn't want to also be competing with, with restaurants in these other areas when they started to open back up and business made sense to turn off the direct-to-consumer model and go back to what we originally are set up to do. We did that. We were able to pull back for a number of reasons, the biggest of, of those being where we at one point had no one calling us and we needed people to work in a different facet and work to the one that's direct to consumer thing. We then started having it go backwards, you know, restaurants were like, Hey, we're getting back open. What do you got? What days are you delivering again? You know, how all is all of that working? So where trucks were being utilized for, to be like a stationary, just a refrigeration unit, if you will, in a parking lot for our drive through um, markets. We then had to get those trucks back on the road to start actually delivering to the restaurants again. We still, to this day, twice a week are operating our market at our main warehouse. Um, we didn't want to just turn it off completely because, you know, there were, there was a lot of people supporting us during this time. And so we did not want to completely cut that off. We also were able to find opportunity and, in this really horrible situation that happened where there are not very many small independent owned like say butcher shops in the Birmingham area. So we're working on trying to get one of those opened up right now to where we can take it from our warehouse and actually have a brick and mortar store for, for this business.
5: Despite the challenges faced and the continued uncertainty of the situation, JT left us on a positive note reminding us of the resilience of the food industry and the people who work in it.
1: The food industry, restaurant industry, it's made up of a lot of resilient people that have worked really hard in the past. Like hard work is not something that, that's that's nothing new to the restaurant scene at all. It's nothing new to the distributor game whatsoever. So all these people all have really rebounded and tried to pivot and figure out different ways of getting food into people's mouths. And so I think we'll continue to see some people have to pivot around a little bit, but hopefully we'll see regular life continue to go back to what it was. And I'm very hopeful to think that, you know, the whole world doesn't just change um, and do a 180 after this.
6: Our next guest, brings a unique set of skills to the discussion, skills that have made him sought out by seafood lovers at the highest levels. Listeners, prepare your shuckers.
2: So my name is Gardner Douglas, um, also known as the Oyster Ninja. Um, husband, father, Army veteran. I have a mobile, well, I had a mobile roll bar uh, in the DMV area, but now it's. Uh, I'm doing more um, oyster deliveries uh, on Saturdays. I'm delivering fresh shucked oysters on the half shell. Before, I had a mobile raw bar. I did a lot of private events, and, um, you know, caterers would hire me to be like a, a oyster raw bar add-on. And, um, you know, I did I did pretty good. Had a lot of fun. And uh, got into a lot of uh, different rooms and around a lot of different people who I never thought I would. Uh shucked for uh, the Obamas at, at Miss Michelle Obama's birthday party. Uh, I shucked in a, in a parade. I had like, it was like a, a raw bar in, in, in the parade as a float. I've shucked some pretty cool events. So now I'm just trying to be creative on how I can keep progressing in the industry. Um, of course, I have the Oyster Ninja podcast where I talk to, you know, different people in the seafood industry. Uh, I'm also doing YouTube videos where I tie everything in together. And I also teach people how to shuck oysters and all about oysters.
0: As a nationally ranked oyster shucker who primarily uses his skills at oyster shucking competitions and catering events, Gardner's business prior to COVID relied on large gatherings and events. While he's been able to adapt to doing online educational events and home deliveries, he admitted that the human connection is a major key to the seafood industry and losing that face time with consumers has been the hardest part of the pandemic for him.
2: It all started honestly um, some of my customers reached out to me. and I really don't like referring to them as customers. We're more like a oyster family, um, be just because of the relationship that I try and uh, develop over the oysters. So they reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, we got a taste for oysters. It's been a while. Uh, can I can I get a dozen or so? And because I had been, you know, changing with the game and I had been doing a bunch of YouTube videos on, like, how to shuck an oyster, how to tell a bad oyster, um from a good one, how to tell a bay oyster from a seaside oyster. Um, I had oysters on hand. I was like, sure, yeah, I can bring you a couple dozen. So that just got me thinking. I was like, well, let me put it out here on Instagram land and see who else would be interested in getting a dozen or two dozen. And the response was kind of overwhelming. I mean, but so what I had to do is really um tailor that because I was like, okay, well, I can't, I can't go everywhere and deliver to everybody for a dozen or two dozen. Um, let me take up the amount. Let me say, all right, the minimum is three dozen and I'll deliver it to you for no charge. So it's not, you know, it's not like I'm getting rich or anything, but like I said, if that one person posts a picture now, all their friends see it. So it's it's really, it's been great to get new clients held that way. And like I said, once uh, COVID is over and we go back to some type of normalcy, uh, I'll be in, I believe I'll be in a much better place because now I can um, post things like I was, but I might have a, a greater response. Or maybe <laughs> people would just get used to me delivering to their house and I'll just be still delivering household things, you know, and I don't know, honestly. I still want to go out and, uh, you know, see people at my events i still want to you know communicate on that type of level and bring people together i'm just a people person and i love for my oyster family to meet each other like oh yeah this is so and so and you guys should you know connect because you guys have this in common or i don't know what it is but i don't want it to be automated um i still want people to you know come out to the events and have a good time also
5: Gardner ended our conversation with a call to consumers to use this opportunity to get out there and eat more seafood.
2: Now is probably the best time to get see- seafood because now you can reach out to the oyster farmer, to the fisherman, uh, you know, and say, "Hey, what do you got coming in fresh today? Are your crab man? Do you have any or how many bushels do you have coming in uh, this week? Can I can I order a bushel from you?" And they're going to have the best price because mm-hmm. it's no middleman. So Uh, I guess COVID has done it for, it's just a matter of finding the outlet, say, hey, I know that oyster company is over here. If I want this flavor profile, and look, I can go online and I can look at in the Half Shell blog and she has a whole list and Lady Oyster, Mm -hmm. she also has a list of oyster farmers who do direct to consumer um, for online sales.
6: This week, we also spoke with Stephen Headland from the Global Aquaculture Alliance. Stephen highlighted the window of opportunity that the aquaculture industry currently has to address consumer concerns about the sustainability and health of farmed seafood.
3: Just because there's increased demand to eat seafood at home or, or farm seafood at home, it doesn't mean that the perceptions or, or even misperceptions regarding aquaculture go away. They're they're still there and the industry has to look at it as an opportunity to educate consumers because a lot may, you know, they just, you know, they pick up tidbits here and there through media and the internet and they may not really understand the issues. And the issues are complex. You know, it's not just about environmental responsibility. It's also about social responsibility and animal health and welfare and, and food safety too, you know, water quality, ocean health, protecting the ecosystem, those are all very, very important issues, but so are treating workers fairly, paying them a living wage, ensuring that the fish are are treated humanely, um, and ensuring that um, the proper food safety protocols are in place.
0: When we spoke to Stephen, the Global Aquaculture Alliance had just held their annual conference, So Stephen shared some conference takeaways about how aquaculture operations all over the world are coping with the pandemic.
3: At our annual conference in early October, we had one presenter who talked a lot about how uh, shrimp was being impacted by COVID-19. And shrimp is, um, as as you probably know, is America's um, uh, favorite seafood by far, and it's farmed all over the globe, Latin America, Southeast Asia, India, China. And we found through interviews that, again, farming and processing and market development were greatly impacted. With farming, 57% skipped one or more cycle, and 71% reduced stocking. And then at processing, about 80% were dealing with labor shortages, and 73% experienced a degree of, of raw material shortages. So Um, you know, it was just, everyone was so focused on the present that it's difficult to plan ahead.
6: Now, this is where Stephen's story gets a little bit different from what we've heard in the past. Small-scale fishermen often had to contend with an oversupply of product because of the pandemic, but the agriculture industry, or at least parts of it, have been experiencing the opposite.
3: I think because with a lot of small-scale fishermen, a lot of their product is being, uh, sold as fresh, Mm -hmm. whereas, um... Uh, uh, farmers of a product like shrimp, a lot of it's being sold as frozen, so there's not that immediate impact to um, to sell the product because the product is um, is processed and frozen and then exported, and it can be um, weeks or months until the product is consumed. So I think that's the difference There is the fresh versus frozen. Um, so for something like shrimp, which is predominantly frozen. Um, there's not as much of an immediate impact because there's not the need to sell it immediately. So I think that's the difference there.
5: An overarching theme of nearly every podcast episode that we've done has been the transition of where we are eating seafood. Whereas much of our seafood dining experience used to happen in restaurants, COVID-19 has forced seafood lovers to learn to prepare seafood at home.
3: On March 1st, nobody really knew how to cook seafood. But then on March 10th, they, they knew how to, how to cook it. So it was just when consumers um particularly in America uh you know just are so cautious about buying a product that they may not necessarily be comfortable with but when presented with a an opportunity uh where they just you know there aren't very many if any opportunities to eat out and they try it at home and they realize that okay you know it's not as difficult to cook as as I thought it was. So then that kind of opens up other avenues, I think, Uh, not just the consumer, you know, popping into the local grocery store and buying fresh salmon filet, for example. They may try other direct-to-consumer services um, locally uh, once they get comfortable with it. You know, it's kind of like one trend's playing off the other. Americans are basically eating the same amount of salmon, which is one of America's most popular seafoods during the pandemic. So um, that trend is just really benefiting supermarkets and direct-to-consumer sales channels, especially home delivery. A lot of trends playing out right now, but it basically all comes back to people finally being comfortable with, or Americans finally being comfortable, or Canadians finally being comfortable with cooking seafood at home. That's my sense.
6: Our final guest this week shared how more people eating seafood at home presents a unique opportunity to strengthen the relationships between consumers and food producers that have traditionally been difficult to cultivate in a restaurant setting.
4: When a producer or a fisher is forced to
5: interact with the end consumer, I think that could only mean good things. That was Julie Chu. Julie is an oyster sommelier, the founder of the In a Half Shell blog. I'm the marketing director for Australis, an aquaculture company based in Australia. You start this dialogue about how the fish or
4: shellfish is caught or harvested, where is it being done, who is doing it, you know, what kind of practices, like those questions can finally be answered. All that information, honestly, is lost and evaporated when you consume seafood in a restaurant. No matter how hard, like many of of the wait staff or chefs want to stay on top of those things, it's like really impossible. So I think that the silver lining for me here is that it's really bringing the end
5: consumer closer to the producers and the wild harvesters. While Julie and I spoke a lot about the impacts of COVID-19 on the aquaculture industry, we also tackled some larger ideas about misperceptions of the seafood industry and seafood consumption that we want to leave our listeners with to think about going into the new year. Aquaculture represents more than 50% of our seafood supply today,
4: and it's projected to grow to 70. So part of the solution to, you know, ensuring a better food supply in the future, we have to do things responsibly. And I guess the infighting between wild and farm that I saw maybe early on in in coming into the seafood industry like it's just not productive I'm just so over it (laughs) it's it's so much it's so much better if we can talk about you know responsible practices in harvest and farming at the same time versus trying to argue like what is better wild versus farmed
0: one interesting point that Julie made was about the difference in the ways that consumers think about land food production versus marine food production, and how these views have impacted the seafood industry.
4: Nobody blinks an eye about agriculture, although there's a lot of criticism to, like, you know, beef production. But in general, um, at least in the U.S., we really romanticize our farmers, and and like the the people who hunt now are seen as the you know, the outliers, whereas It is completely flipped with fisheries and aquaculture companies. It's really interesting. I think there's definitely history behind just the lack of familiarity and lack of comfort with the water. You can't see anything that's going on in the water. So you kind of assume potentially the worst. But you know, oyster farms, at least in the US, I like to say they're the gateway to sustainable seafood because. Oyster farms are situated in some of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, They have to have clean water. They can't be around a lot of development. So when I visit these oyster farms, that's where I got hooked because you have these beautiful sunsets, you have pristine waters, you have a crop that kind of doesn't really look like much at, at most, they kind of look like vineyards in, in a tidal flat. And it's just a really beautiful thing. And I think that our notion of what aquaculture is, is limited because we don't do enough of it. I guess my suggestion is like, if you want to learn about what aquaculture is and can be, just visit an oyster farm and have an oyster like right out of the water. And it's really amazing. And I think that allows you to start being a little bit more curious and open-minded of what aquaculture can be.
6: As for what the future holds for the aquaculture and seafood industry, Julie made some predictions about how the industry can be more accessible to consumers moving forward.
4: The way I think that we can make seafood more accessible is to look at potentially the underutilized uh, species that are available as wild harvest and possibly um, farmed products in other formats. So I guess I'm, I'm thinking about examples of Like going back to the days of tinned fish, like tinned mackerel sardines, I personally love tinned sardines when they're uh, packaged the right way. Um, There's actually a very large high end category of those types of products coming out of Portugal and Spain that I absolutely adore. Don't know how, if we can do that here in this country, but that is potentially one way to, you know, make use of all of the products that have to be harvested potentially at one time and then preserved to consume later. I think one of the challenges is that uh, for fishermen is they they have a set time where they can go out and capture products. And if they don't have a way of selling it at that same time, that's when the costs get very wonky. So can they find a way to you know preserve that quality either through freezing or through canning Um, smoking those are two other alternatives that really help maybe make the at least the costs sort of flatten out a little bit I almost think like anywhere you can find ice cream you should be able to find good seafood because seafood and like especially fish can be frozen in such a way that it preserves all of their nutritional value great texture Um, If you thaw it properly, it pretty much tastes the same as if it was just caught. In fact, in many cases, if you are living inland, probably a better option anyway than to try and find never frozen, quote unquote, just caught fish off of like a day boat because that takes days, if not weeks to, to get to those markets. So freezing technology, I think, is one way that we can bring more seafood at more accessible prices to a larger population and still make it delicious and very high quality.
0: Thanks for joining us. Social Scene is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America and beyond for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday.
6: To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal
5: Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and the MEOPAR Network. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today we heard from J.T. McKissack, Steve Hedlund, Gardner-Douglas, and Julie Chu.
6: You're listening to Green Leaves by Jason Shaw, available for free at the Free Music Archive. See you next time.